Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In the special episodes, I like to look at specific philosophers, little articles or essays that we can dedicate just a little episode to itself. And we've not done one in quite some time, so I thought... Why not? Let's have a little bit of an extra episode going on. So, this special episode then, we will be covering the pre-Socratics and dealing with one of the most famous pre-Socratic philosophers of Heraclitus. So, what I'll be covering is just in a very general sense first of the pre-Socratics. Basically, who are they and what did they think? Since it's a good idea for us to get a good basis and grounding for who are these people in the first place. And then after we've had a nice discussion of the pre-Socratics, I think it's then a good time to move into Heraclitus's view of the world and then of the self. And when we deal with the notions of the self, it's of course ideas of self-identity and going back into the questions, those deep philosophical questions like who am I and what exactly makes up me as an individual. And then from all that, we'll have a nice example of Heraclitus coming back into how can we think of this philosopher and what he said in relation to our everyday life. Because sometimes in philosophy, things can be really abstract or sometimes they can be talking about things in a really technical way and you can be completely lost exactly by what they're saying. And so, it's always good for us to go back to an everyday basis, back to an everyday example, and from that, we can clearly see in a nice, easy way exactly what they're talking about. On the one hand, take away some of all that technicality and difficulty that's perhaps there, and just make it go down to the most easiest and simplest way to try and understand someone. So let's get started then. Who are the pre-Socratics? And the answer to that question is a collection of philosophers and scientists who lived in the Mediterranean, which is the cities in Greece in southern Italy to the coast of the Black Sea. So, a good image to bring up as well in a Google search is currently the one I'm having a look at on screen as well. If you type in the world of the pre-Socratic philosophers in and then click on the images search, you'll then find a nice little map of the little area there that's going to show you Greece, all the little cities there, Thebes, Corinth, Sparta, Athens, and so on, and then just across for the Aegean Sea, you'll see 
all the little towns as it's going down the coast there of Turkey as well. And so that gives us a nice little idea about where in the world exactly everybody is. So all the pre-Socratics lived between 600 and 400 BC. And Socrates himself lived from 469 to 399 BC. And so there's not that exactly clear overlap between pre-Socratics to Socrates, of course. Socrates himself is deemed that much of an important philosopher, of course. Everything to do with Socrates and what he says, then that's deemed such an event. Everybody is called pre-Socratic before Socrates, of course. And so we could touch upon here quite an interesting thing when you're dealing with the pre-Socratics is that the pre-Socratic philosophers, their sources are either based upon a secondary quote, as in a fragment of what they've said, or a summary of their view. And an example of that is the Platonic Dialogues. And so you'll have an instance in which you can have it in Plato, where Plato will discuss through the character of Socrates in his dialogues a specific fragment about what one of the pre-Socratic philosophers have said. And we have that from one of the quotes that we'll be dealing with in a little bit. You can never step in the same river twice is a nice famous Heraclitus saying that also Plato deals with. And you can also then have it in a much longer sense at the same time as well, where you'll have perhaps a whole discussion in Plato for the dialogue dealing with a specific pre-Socratic philosopher. And you have that also in Aristotle as well, where Aristotle will have a long discussion about the pre-Socratics. And a good example of that in Aristotle is book one of the metaphysics that specifically deals with pre-Socratic views before he then goes on to discuss Plato. And since this is all based upon secondary sources, we run into, as you can quite imagine, a problem. Because you have interpretive problems precisely coming from secondary sources all the time. And a nice way to put that in another context would be if you're wanting to watch a film, for example, but you haven't seen it yourself at all, and so you rely upon your friend who's watched the film before, and then suddenly their opinion will affect exactly how you think of that film. And depending upon what they say, you either might go, oh, that sounds absolutely amazing. I'm going to definitely go see it. Or, oh, I don't know now. I'd rather save my money and go watch something else. And you can see the problem with that is that you've allowed someone else to influence your view. 
and influence your opinion. And so you've not went and watched the movie for yourself. And so, therefore, you might absolutely have that completely different opinion from your friend. Even if you completely trust their opinion outright, even if their opinion is right 99% of the time, there's always just that 1% chance that, of course, that they could be wrong, or that you just have a different understanding of it altogether. You notice something that they didn't. And so, coming back to the pre-Socratics then, we can precisely see that as a problem when we try to understand the views of the pre-Socratics. You're automatically going to have a biased view from the point of Plato or from the point of Aristotle, in which, in both instances, you'll have them always be critical of the pre-Socratics and there's always that sense of privileging their own position over the others. So we always have to be aware of sort of the lens under which someone's trying to analyze something in the first place. Which is just a good lesson in life overall, I think, that if we just try to always take things with a pinch of salt, always try to think, this person has an agenda, this person's going to try to put a specific spin on things, always to try and remember not only what we read, but who's writing it in the first place is a really important thing to always keep in mind. There's another problem that we also run into when dealing with the pre-Socratics. Since things don't exist in any concrete way, that is to say, there doesn't really exist full text or books from the pre-Socratics. We only have these fragments. You can see, well, how do we have a coherent understanding of a view from all these different fragments? Wouldn't it be a problem in trying to piece them together? How can we say from all these different bits and bobs, statements from here, little pieces from there, how do we fit it together as a collective whole? And you could think about this in terms of an archaeological dig. In the same sense, if you were digging away there in an archaeological pit, let's say, with little brushes and so forth, and you found a vase, and then you've got to find all the little pieces of that vase and try and piece them back together. But thankfully, you might say, oh no, does that mean we can't reach an understanding of the pre-Socratics whatsoever? Does that mean that ultimately we're just stuck with an incomplete vase? And the answer is, Yes, it is an incomplete vase, 
but there are certainly bits that we can piece together from their views that then argue for consistency throughout all the different points. So let's say we've found just a few different bits and bobs of fragments, but throughout that, there is a form of a consistent argument that's made or points that are made that we can attribute to the specific people. So let's build upon that and say, what's one of the things that the pre-Socratics have in common? And that is that the pre-Socratic philosophers are naturalists and they're analyzing the natural world. And from that, we have the very early foundations and reflecting upon and thinking about the world itself and trying to understand the natural causes for why things occur in the world. And as you could imagine in that state, just someone having a nice walk, a nice deep think to themselves, having a look at plants and flowers and thinking, I wonder how they grow. I wonder what is the cause of that. And equally, when plants and flowers wither, you could think, I wonder why that is. I wonder why they wither. And thinking upon just those deep questions, as you might do on just a nice walk about. And so, for the pre-Socratics then, we run into various different answers for this question of what is the natural cause for why things occur in the world. And you have various different answers from various different pre-Socratics. And what's always fabulous about philosophy is everybody always comes down to their specific answer and nobody ends up with the same answer. And so one example is a nice one that we can fit into modern science. And that is the pre-Socratic Democritus, who is born circa, which means roughly, there's not an exact historical date for this. So circa 460 to circa 370 BC. And the important thing about Democritus as a thinker and philosopher is that he believed the world was composed of atoms, which today, of course, atomic theory is true. In fact, atoms do exist. And you can just think upon that how amazing it is that someone thought of atoms before we can have proof of them in modern science. And so we can then go into other examples. And others believed that an element 
was the foundation for all life. And let's have some examples of those. For Thales, it was water. For Anaximenes, it is air. And Anaximander, a combination of hot and cold. And we can see exactly how they can arrive at this thought process and also how they can arrive at the conclusion. For Thales, you can see that we need water to live. And it appears plants also need water and animals also need water. Therefore, water seems to have a fundamental relation into the world and life itself. Therefore, I think water is the natural cause. Then, for Anaximenes, air equally. You can see his thought process there. We need to breathe. Human beings need air. We breathe. We can see that animals also breathe. Therefore, air has a fundamental relation into our life and how we live. And then, for Anaximander, you can see hot and cold. You can see how he's thinking of things affecting us. If I put on a bunch of warm clothes and it's really hot, I'm going to be too hot. Likewise, we can use this with hot and cold water. If I run cold water on my hands, I'm going to feel that it's cold. If I run hot water on my hands, it's going to be hot. And from our environment as well, we can see hot and cold has an effect upon various different things in our environment. When it's cold and it's raining, Therefore, that has an effect upon plants. They can grow. But when it's too hot, there is no plants. They didn't grow. And so, you can see from all these thought processes exactly how the pre-Socratics are analyzing the world about them and thinking about the different ways in which we're affected by things and trying to reach those deep questions about that natural cause. Exactly what is the foundation for all life? Such a deep question to ask. So, then let's move on from the pre-Socratics, in a very general sense there, to move into Heraclitus. So, Heraclitus is born circa, which means roughly around 450 BC. And what's interesting is, is that he was a member of the aristocracy of Epizus, and he turned his back on a political life and gave up a ruling position of Ephesus to his brother in order to live his life as a philosopher. So that in and of itself is quite interesting, just from his background, that he didn't seek out 
a political position, a ruling position, but wanted to live his life philosophically. And we can say, well, where is Epizus? And let's bring up the little part there from Google. And it says, Epizus is an ancient city in Turkey's central Aegean region near modern-day Sulkuk. Its excavated remains reflect centuries of history from classical Greece to the Roman Empire, when it was the Mediterranean's main commercial centre to the spread of Christianity, paved streets, wind past squares, baths and monumental ruins. The Temple of Hadrian was built before 138 AD for Emperor Hadrian's visit. And so we can see there it was quite an important place as well as it's being one of the main Mediterranean commercial centers. And so a nice painting to ha go have a look at that I think I'll use as this episode's overall picture is the one where Heraclitus is portrayed as a weeping philosopher. And so I'm looking at the painting by Moralisi. That's M-O-R-E-E-L-S-E. -E -E, in which he has his hands clasped, his head down, eyes closed, with his hands over the world. And he appears to have some sort of brown robe on him. And he looks like what you'd imagine ancient Greek man to look like with a big beard, bald spot in his head with some grey hair around the sides. And so let's jump into a quote from Heraclitus here to discuss. The majority of people have no understanding of the things with which they meet daily, nor when instructed, do they have any right knowledge of them, although to themselves they seem to have. So let's break this quote down a little. The majority of people have no understanding of the things with which they meet daily. So, we can think about that in a deep way here. We go around our life taking in understanding knowledge and that then of course has meaning and value to us where what we've learned we assume to be true and there's that element of belief as well in the truth that what we know and have learned that we believe it to be true and we walk about in our daily lives believing in what we've been told is the truth. And so, then, let's go into the next part of it. Nor, when instructed, do they have any right knowledge of them, although to themselves they seem to have. And so here we have the challenge to the teachers here, and those who are instructing us and those who are giving us knowledge and giving us truth. Here, Heraclitus is saying, 
people do not have any correct knowledge, nor do they have correct knowledge, nor are the teachers giving them correct knowledge. But what is the crux of all this? Although to themselves they seem to have, we seem to have the correct knowledge. We walk about our everyday lives believing that we have the correct knowledge, that we're instructed, we're taught the correct knowledge, and we always seem to think we're correct. And here comes the big question, of course. Could we be wrong? Yes. Why? Because knowledge is not something that is fixed. We believe it's true. We have faith also in the people that are teaching us that they're teaching us the truth and giving us knowledge back. But that knowledge is not something that's fixed. And what does that mean? It means that knowledge itself is something that is in a state of continual transformation and change. No idea remains always true for eternity. That's another way of putting it. And Think of all the benefits of that ideas changing there as well, as it allows progress, new ideas to emerge, that continual flux. But if you affirm all that, it's saying at some points in history, and even now, we're understanding things, we are being taught things, that are only true in a certain time period. Our knowledge at present is limited. It has basically an expiry date on it. And at some point, there'll be something that challenges it, overcomes it, and then that becomes the new model. And that's how deep we can go into for these little fragments as well, because from all that, we can see the importance of the ideas of change and flux and transformation already come out for Heraclitus, because these are going to be really key concepts and ideas for him. And so building upon all that, as we've seen with the pre-Socratics then, we've had the whole argument that is being based upon some sort of fundamental natural cause. We've had water, we've had air, we've had hot and cold. For Heraclitus, he fits into that as well, because for Heraclitus, fire is used as the principle for understanding the natural world. And initially, when we think of fire, we think of perhaps its immediate chemical or scientific nature about it. But that's not what we want to get here. We don't want to think about the scientific properties, the chemical properties and so forth 
of fire, but rather, if we think of fire, what some of the ideas that emerge? It's destructive. And of course, there is at the moment those really horrible fires that's going on in California, which is just absolutely destroying tens of thousands of acres of trees and woodland. And so from that, we can see the incredible amount of destructive force that fire has. But is fire only a destructive thing? What can also happen once the destruction is calmed down? What would people do? And the answer to that would be rebuild. And so we can see that from the whole destructive aspect of it, there's that reconstructive aspect of it at the same time. Rebirth also is another good idea there. And then we can take this as an idea and put it back into thinking of knowledge. And so if you think about fire in relation to knowledge, you can see the benefits of what Heraclitus is saying here. Fire acting as a destructive force, challenging past ideas or even current ideas, and then trying to affirm all those ideas of newness, rebirth, difference, different opinions, different perspectives, all to emerge. And we have a nice quote here. All things are an exchange for fire and fire for all things as goods for gold and gold for goods. And so that's a fantastic idea to think about for Heraclitus's idea of fire as a metaphor precisely for this whole idea of flux, change, transformation. And let's continue on building on these ideas then about Heraclitus and this idea of transformation. And let's go to one of his most famous sayings that is quoted. It is impossible to step into the same river twice. And then you're immediately hit with the question, why? Why is it impossible to step in the same river twice? So let's just do this very simply to start with. We just walk forward. There's a nice stream. We're barefooted even. It's a lovely day. We walk forward. We step in the stream. We walk back. We walk forward into the stream. We walk back. And therefore, immediately, your initial answer to that is, what rubbish. I have walked forward into the stream. I have walked back. I have walked forward again into the same stream. And I have walked back again. And it was the same river twice. And therefore, Heraclitus is talking a complete load of nonsense. But let's take a moment to think about this on a slightly deeper level here. 
Are rivers something that are static? No. Why is that? Because rivers are in a complete state of movement all the time. And now everybody will start to see where my argument's going to be starting to be headed. If you move into the river, that river will be in a state of movement. And therefore, you can say it's not the same river that you've stepped into because the water will have been in continual change and so the piece of water itself will be in continual flux. Then you can say, okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, what happens if I come back later in the day? It's going to be the same place, the same location, the same river, and I can do exactly the same thing. And then the reply comes back to that, it's not. It's not because of the fact that change has occurred within that passing of time. That the river is going to have moved on down continually. Let's say there's grass. That's going to be affected by the weather and so forth. All these little things. Novel things. And here we see the importance of this for Heraclitus. It's all the things that we normally don't think about. That so little and even minute and minuscule to the point that in our everyday life we completely don't think about them or don't even take into consideration all the moments of continual change and continual flux. And so we can say that for an environmental aspect about things, things are always in a state of continual change and continual flux. Of course, it's only when we notice things on a much larger scale that we tend to notice these things. Like, for instance, trees and the cycle of the seasons, for instance. We can see absolutely bare trees, no leaves whatsoever in winter. The leaves starting to return in spring, fully in bloom by summer, and then starting to lose their leaves again in autumn, and then lost them all again in winter. We can see quite clearly all this movement throughout the seasons on trees. And you, of course, can see that on the environment at the same time. But what Heraclitus wants to make us think about is this change at the minute level on an everyday basis. All these little things are happening all the time for this whole idea of transformation and change. And that then has the knock-on effect of how we see things over time, of the changing of the trees and so forth. And then also the second half of that, building on the environment as a thing that's always in change, 
always in transformation and flux, we could also put that back to ourselves as a question, as stepping in and out of the same river. Because we can say, well, even our biology is in a continual state of transformation and change. Cell division, for example, is a continual ongoing thing within our bodies. And then we can also say, just apply this into a very general question about ourselves. What does Heraclitus mean when we apply this notion of transformation to the notion of the self and our idea of self-identity, therefore? We can pull all this into this question. And we can also say we are not the same person when we are a baby, a child, or an adult because of also that sense of continual development and continual growth. And we can also say this in terms of us as a person because we're not the same person because our ideas are in a continual state of development at the same time. And a great example of that is when we think of a past idea, perhaps we really loved a specific author when we were 16. And then suddenly when we're 30, we think, God, did I really love that author? They are terrible now. That's a moment in which you've changed as a person. And that's what Heraclitus makes us think about as well, is those continual challenges that we have to our ideas in such a way that we challenge our own beliefs, challenge what we think is true. Are these things always the same? And the answer to that question is no. Let's say we're really an aesthetic football fan and we really passionately love a team for our whole life. The love for that team itself will be a changing thing throughout time through the wins and losses that happen if they win championship cups or not and so on. It's a continually developing thing. Likewise, we can use that in relation to friends or loved ones. Those relationships are never static. There are always those aspects of changing our opinions about someone, finding out something new about them, and so on. And so when we think about the transformation of ourself here for Heraclitus, we can take it both in the sense of our continual biological development over time and the changes that happen within our body over time, but we can also think about our ideas changing and changing exactly who we are and what we think is also incredibly important to us. And so, then we can relate in Heraclitus to our daily routine. And we can just think about our daily routine as something like 
And we can think about our daily routine as waking up from bed, getting washed, having breakfast, going to work, having lunch, coming back home, having dinner, watching TV, and then going to bed, and then doing the same thing over and over and over again. And a good question to ask ourselves, is our everyday routine the same or is it different? What makes it the same, of course, is the structure. The whole idea of getting up, getting washed, having meals at certain times a day, watching TV, going back to bed. All that structure is exactly the same, but is it exactly the same every single day? What could happen? And let's give a good example in which you wake up, you slept in, you rush, you go to burn the toast, and then you're in a panic, you put on your shirt, button it up incorrectly, and then you panic and go out the door. And then you go out and then you miss the fact that there's dog poo on the pavement. You step in it and you're like, no. And then you go to catch the bus to go to work and you miss the bus. What are all these different examples doing? Is that someone is having, of course, a really terrible day. Or at least terrible start to the day. But that's a really good example because it shows us all the little things that happen have an importance precisely on the structure itself. The burning of the toast or perhaps the toast was absolutely delicious that day. All those little things again that we take for granted or that can even irritate us and annoy us are important because it's those little novelties that make each day different to us. It's almost like the whole idea of you wake up and each day is fresh and each day is a new day because you don't know all the little things that could happen in that day. And it's of course to think about this in an incredibly positive way here, not to say that somebody's going to continually have a horrible day all the time, but just all those importances of the little things in life, all those little novelties, precisely shape our life in a grand way, but also in an everyday sense at the same time. And that's what Heraclitus and his approach makes us aware of in our everyday routines, the importance of all those little novelties, all those little things that happen. And so we can say then, rounding off the episode, that the pre-Socratics are naturalists, all things in the world have a natural cause for explaining why things happen in the world. Having a nice deep think about things, trying to understand 
the causes for things. And then for Heraclitus, fire is used as a metaphor for explaining the continual transformation of the world and ourself. We and things continually transform over time and so are never the same. And by being more open to novelty negates the mundaneness of our everyday routine. Many thanks for listening to this special episode on the pre-Socratics and Heraclitus. Feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Feel free to drop me an email at my address dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. Tip me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. And lastly, I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next time.